You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay. So good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, so this is uh, an essay by Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson that we're going to uh, be taking a look at, entitled, and really the, the, the subject matter that we've been discussing over the past several months, what are we doing when we pray? Right? And... Um, um, He's going to be approaching uh, prayer from a perspective that I've introduced uh, in, in a very small manner uh, over the past few months, which is uh, the, the context of process theology, which is a, uh, a school of philosophical thought um, begun by a uh, mathematician turned philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, um, uh, in the uh, early 20th century, um, and was uh, developed more substantially in the realm of theology by uh, by a thinker named Charles Hartshorn, um, and is uh, now um, uh, now sort of the, the the dean of process theologians is a guy named John Cobb. Um, but there have been um, a number of, uh, of of Jewish thinkers that have been touched uh, by process theology um, and uh, and and influenced by process theology. Even if they uh, even if Rabbi Artzin is probably the first Jewish thinker to um, to uh, be sort of all in on uh, on the on the um, on the terminology and, and context of, of process theology, but other thinkers like Mordechai Kaplan, uh, both of the Kushners, um, uh, even to a certain extent, as I mentioned the other day, um, uh, Heschel, um, uh, I, I think, uh, in some ways uh, uh, fits in with this uh, uh, dynamic. Right? Um, you'll see in just a moment right, the whole idea that Heschel uh, uh, introduces in, in really his seminal work, God in Search of Man, right, is, is one of the central elements of process theology, that God constantly seeks us out, not as an abstraction, but as each of us individually, God constantly seeks us out and, and, and beckons us to follow him or her. Um, so that's the uh, context uh, in, in which this essay is going to approach prayer. Um, I want to start on the second page. We're going to um, uh, probably not cover all of this today, but even in not covering all of this today, we're still going to have to skip a little bit because it's uh, a little bit lengthy. But I want to invite you to take it with you uh, and, uh, and, and read on your own as well. All right, so look at the top of page two. Um, and, uh, um, and this, I think... Uh, encapsulates um, uh, some of the uh, dissonance uh, that, uh, that, that many of us feel in, in prayer. Okay, so look at the second paragraph, or the first full paragraph, rather. Most people pray with the hope, expectation that their prayers make a difference. That God wants our reaching out. That our focus contributes to a different and better outcome. Often our prayers are formulated as requests as though God needs a reminder or persuasion to do the right thing. Or we grovel words of mollification, as though we can forestall a punishment or entice a reward if we only get the words right, feel bad enough, or crawl low enough to remain under the radar of God's notice. And I don't know if any of you have uh, have. have uh, have felt this way or have thought about this, but there is a, a, a theological problem there. Right? If we if we imagine 
uh, if we understand God to be perfect, right, and if we understand God to be good, um, then why does God need our prayers? Right? So why does God need our prayers of requests? If God uh, knew something was the right thing to do, God would already be doing it. Right? And, uh, right, so if, if I'm praying for, let's say, uh, someone to get better, and I imagine that God is the source of that person's illness, uh, and God could also be the, the, the uh, cure of that person's illness, right, uh, why would I assume that, uh, that, that my prayer would change the mind of a perfect deity? Right, and uh, um, and then the other part. Right? So, um, uh, you know, sometimes we will, I'll, I'll I'll butter God up so God will grant my request, or that God will uh, will not punish me for the wrongdoing that I've done. I'll beat my chest harder, etc. Right, um, with, for, with a perfect God, a God who is all knowing uh, and uh, and and, uh, and and entirely moral, uh, it means that would suggest um, that uh, that that our um, uh, uh, praise of God, our, our, our yearning for God to change his mind about us, are vain prayers. And so that's the problem. Despite the real motives we bring to prayer, most people have been taught to think of God as unchanging, eternal, all-knowing, omniscient, and in complete control, omnipotent. We've talked about this a, a handful of times. I'm glad Ralph's not here today. He might have a conniption. Um, <laughs> If God is unchanging, he's uh, uh, doing better. Thank God. Um, if God is un- if God is unchanging, that means God must remain unaffected by our prayers. If God is all knowing, then God knows what we're going to say before we say it, knows the situation we feel impelled to pray about, and knows the future before it becomes real in the present. Right? If you if you really stop to think about it. Um, it, it, it makes the way uh, many of us have been trained to think about prayer kind of absurd because of the way we've been trained to think about God. Right? And, uh, and, and we've been trained to think of these two things in, in sort of separate spheres um, with nar- where nary the two shall meet. Uh, but if you conflate them together, what we're supposed to be doing in prayer with what we're supposed to think about God, they are in, I think, major contradiction with each other. Maybe God just wants us to do our part if if there is a God. Okay, well, so the second the second part. Let's let's assume the second part for the uh, context of this conversation. Although it's not uh, uh, not a, uh, a, a, a an out of bounds uh, um, conversation to have. Um, but the what does that mean that God wants us to do our part? He wants to bring us into the process, and um, things can't just be. We have to be part of it. Why? Or else we won't feel connected. Why does it matter whether or not we feel connected? Well, um, it matters because we're the ones doing the feeling. And if we don't feel connected, then we won't um, respond in any way to God. Mm -hmm. So, but, but, but basically what you're saying underneath that is that, uh, is, is that, is that prayer is an exercise in delusion, right? That, uh, that, that it's, no. it's to make ourselves feel better no, about actually, something. that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say it's delusion. I'd say it's doing our part. Right, but, but, our, but there is no part for us in this kind of theological context. 
right? What you what what I heard you saying is that is that prayer makes us feel like we're apart, right? Uh, feel like we have a role. But I don't look at this. I don't really look at it as delusional. I look at it as simply us participating, us participating in our own lives. Um, yeah, taking like because, an active role. In, right, because in, if we're not going to do it for ourselves, why should God do it for us? Well, I can't, uh, you know, let me take the other side. I can't accept that everything is predetermined or predestined. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I know there's plenty of theology that says that's correct, not Jewish theology particularly, but there is theology to that effect. But Of course, I absolutely, I totally agree. Well, there's lots of Jewish theology that, that says that even though we don't like to admit it, we like to, we, we like to um, say certain things about God and then, uh, and then, turn around and say almost exactly the opposite thing by saying that, that human beings have free will. But if you go through um, especially the, um, um, the Hasidic literature or Orthodox theology nowadays, um, um, there, there's a very strong uh, uh, element of, uh, of, of uh, predetermination in, in that theology. Right? That, that, uh, that, that everything is, uh, happens according to divine providence. That, uh, that anything that happens to you is, uh, is, an, is an aspect of, uh, of, of God's will and God's plan. Right? And so uh, right? a common uh, um, uh, phrase that you hear when tragedy happens in, uh, in, in some communities is um, it's part of God's plan. We don't understand the plan, but it's part of God's plan. And what that means is that is that we didn't actually have a role in it, right? The um, the, the the person who drove the car that hit you um, uh, wasn't to- wasn't really in control of that car, right? God was in control of that car. God wanted that car to hit you, or, or, right, because of X, Y, or Z reason, right? Um, so so I I, under- I understand what you're what you're saying, um, but I but I'm. I'm, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why um, uh, um, uh, if God is, uh, um, is, is unchanging, all-knowing, and in complete control, um, then what part do we have? Yeah. The uh, response started out that God wants us to pray. And I would flip the coin the other way and say that we want to pray because... We don't want to just be helpless and stand by and let whatever is there occur. We feel that, what can we do? What, how can we participate? Someone's ill. Rather than just stand idly by mm-hmm. and count on God, maybe I could do something. Maybe I could participate a little. Whether or not it's pre-destiny uh, or not, I'm, I feel that I'm, I'm involved. But that's my wish, not God's wish. Right. So right, but it, so it's it's something. It does something psychologically for you, right? It makes you feel. It, it, it's sort of like here I stand. I can do no other, right? You may not actually make an impact, but sure. but you know that you're that you that you're that you're on the on the moral right side. I'm not sure, but at least I'm doing what <coughs> I can do at the moment. Mm-hmm. In the Exodus, after 400 years of slavery, it says. God listened to the cries of the Israelites. Right. And then he decided to take them out. You, right. So you will get no arguments from me that the God of the Bible is not an unchanging, all-knowing, omnipotent God. Right? Because an unchanging, all-knowing, omnipotent God doesn't 
do exactly what you're describing in the opening chapters of Exodus, hear the cries of the Israelites, know, know what's going on, as if God didn't know, that's the term that the Torah uses, right? Uh, that God knows what's going on, which supposes that God didn't know what was going on before he heard the cries, right? You have countless examples of that, right? In the story of the flood, God uh, repented of the fact that he created human beings. That doesn't sound like an all-knowing, unchanging God, Right? It sounds like a God that uh, didn't exactly know what was going to happen when he created human beings and then changed his mind about the wisdom of having created them right? in that way. So, uh-huh. you know, so, uh, so that's, that I, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very taken by process theology because, um, uh, and by Rabbi Artson is, as well, um, because it, uh, it, 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 I think, hews a closer line to the God of the, of the Bible, which is a God that, um, that makes mistakes, a God that can be changed, a God that, um, that is changed by God's relationship with humanity. Um, and, and we'll get into that in a second, but uh, um, uh, that to me um, is a, uh, uh, if that's the God we're talking about in prayer, that's a perfectly reasonable um, approach to prayer, right? Because it does have an impact. Um, but most of us haven't been taught to think of God that way. We've been taught to um, to think of God as unchanging, all-knowing, and and all-powerful, and then to reinterpret the Torah in the context of that language. Although that creates lots of problems for commentators, it has created lots of problems for commentators over the over the centuries. My conclusion is not the same as yours, though. What's your conclusion? My conclusion is he he follows what he's going to do anyway, but he, he waits to. He's, Waits to hear uh, some kind of plea from the people involved, but he's still—it's still part of the omnipotence that he has and the control that he has. So he still makes a prediction uh, to Abraham that this is going to happen. That's the, the trouble I have with it. Uh, okay, so <laughs> so good. All right. First of all, what you see, what I think you see in the Torah are are. Uh, collection of different theologies. Um, so, oh, and, and, and many of the commentators have a, a huge problem with the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and where he pro- where God prophesies uh, the the eventual enslavement of the Israelites, precisely because it seems to prohibit the free will of both the Israelites and the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they come at it from the other side. Right. How, how could it be that God predicts that the Israelites will be enslaved for four hundred years? Does that mean that the Egyptians have no agency? When it comes to enslaving the Israelites, that Pharaoh has no choice when it comes to enslaving... And if Pharaoh has no choice, right, this is the problem of the whole hardening of the heart thing in the book of Exodus. If Pharaoh has no choice, then how is it at all moral or fair for God to inflict such devastation and, 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 and damage on Pharaoh and the Egyptians? It wasn't his choice. God made it happen. So you have problems from both sides in, in, in that regard. But I, I just, if you, okay, let's try to, li- let's drop our, our theological assumptions about God. For me. Let's say this is the first time you've ever read anything about God, all right? And you're reading um, uh, the, the passage in, in, in the book of Exodus that you're, that you're describing, okay? Um, so it's uh, um, in, um, uh, okay, uh, chapter, chapter 2, Verse 23, let's just imagine this is the first thing you're ever hearing about God. This is the first time you've ever read the Bible, ever heard anything uh, about Judaism, um, and you just happen to open the book to chapter 2, verse 23 of Exodus, and, uh, and, and what would you say about 
God <coughs> if you read this passage. By the way, ultra impressive. What? That you just knew exactly where to it's go hard. to. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> uh, I, I went to school for reasons. Okay. Okay. He had a good Hebrew school background. Uh, I, I had a plant. I had a, um, day school education works. Okay. Um, uh, right, so in, in a long time after that, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites were, were groaning uh, from the labor. And they cried out. V'ta'al shavatam el ha'Elohim min ha'avodah, and the cries um, from amidst their labor rose up to God. V'yishma Elohim et nakatam, God heard their moaning. V'yiskor Elohim et brito, et Avraham et Yitzchak et Yaakov, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. V'yar Elohim et bnei Yisrael. God saw the children of Israel, Vayeda Elohim, and God knew. Okay, so let's imagine we don't know anything about God other than this passage. What kind of God is this? Human. What's that? Just Human woke up. behavior. It's all personification. Very personified. Okay. And responsive. Responsive. Good. What else? Just woke up. Okay, so 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 either right, either uh, God as God you know could have known what was going on, right? Could have been aware of what was going on, but had you know had his back turned the whole time, right? Or was asleep, right? Um, and well, forgot uh, about those guys. Right, yeah. for, forgot about right, right, right. But Yiskor Elohim God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? What kind of all-knowing, unchanging God forgets? And because the, right, the remembering implies that there was a period of time where God forgot about it, right? So, what kind of all-knowing God forgot about this really important covenant that God made just a couple hundred years before with uh, the the forefathers of the Jewish people? I think it's a, an effort to understand God and to personify God through human attributes, but. It's just an effort. It's, well, it doesn't really help very much. You Charlotte, know. if you assume God wrote it, if these are words handed down... Well, that's quite an assumption. Well, <laughs> but, but that, again, that's Orthodox theology today, and that makes it even more difficult to, to make it fit in. Well, so, so, um, but we, can under, we can only understand from our point of view. Our point of view is human. Right. So we try and think about God within that framework. But God is beyond that framework, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And we, the only way we can approach God is through this. How do you know that God's beyond that framework? I know. <laughs> Thank you, Ralph. Picking <laughs> 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 like up for Ralph in here. By, by the way, Ralph is listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, it's so, so are the uh, millions of viewers at home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mindy? Oh, I was just going to say, I'm on faith. Is, is why she feels so certain about that. That was my guess. But what I was going to say is this is actually a test in humility because if I were one of those generations who was stuck in enslavement, that is my life today. And, and the folks who were caught up in this whole experience, their lives were microscopic in the, the timeline of our people, and so are we in our own way. So it's a test in humility, too. It's how, 
how we should see our lives in a way. I'm, I'm trying to get a handle of what you're saying. So then, so put it back in the um, in, in the context of this story from Exodus. So if I were three generations before God heard the cry, that's what I think about. I think about all of the people, all of my people who went through this experience before God heard the cry. Yeah. And that gives me a place, honestly, for the Shoah. Right. Um, and there are lots of people who interpret the Holocaust that way, right? Who, who say that it was God, um, um, uh, that, 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 that God was hiding God's face <coughs> during the, the Shoah. And the only way that I can, that I can explain um, the, the murder of six million Jews um, in, in a world where uh, God is all-powerful uh, um, and all-knowing is that God deliberately decided not to know. Um, the problem of that is that that, to me, calls into question God's goodness, right? Unless you want to say, which you could, but I have trouble with this too, unless you want to say, you know, in, in some kind of a, um, a large-scale cosmic plan of which, to which we're not privy, um, uh, that, uh, that, that, the, that the plan ultimately works out and is ultimately really good, we just can't see it. And the Holocaust, though tragic from our limited perspective, um, was um, a part of a larger plan that, that, could we have a larger perspective, we would see as being entirely good. Okay, so that's, that's really the only way you can do that. But that, to me, um, uh, doesn't help. It does to some people, and and uh, and and if it does for you, that's great. To me, um, if 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 there's some cosmic plan that involves the murder of one and a half million babies, and in some way that plan is good, I don't know what good and evil means anymore. Right, and and that's problematic to me. Not only because it calls into question whether or not God is good, um, that's a little bit less problematic um, uh, than uh, than than my understanding of the human terms of of good and evil, right? Because w- those words have to mean something. And if, and if good can include the murder of one and a half million babies, then what am I supposed to do in the world? What's good anymore? But isn't that the triumph of evil? And that's that gives you your moral compass, in a way. Well, it, but if it's the triumph of evil, then it means that either God was powerless to stop that evil, or God deliberately decided not to stop that evil or to look away from it. If God was powerless to stop it, which I actually do believe, right? Then I can preserve God's goodness, right? And you could say that there was a triumph of uh, of, of human evil, which happens from time to time. Unfortunately, when uh, good people uh, don't do what they can to stop it, and you know, it, it, and on and on. So um, you believe that God was powerless because you would rather believe that than that He is evil, right? Right. And we're out of time. Um, we'll uh, um, we'll continue uh, this conversation. Can I make uh, just one comment. Sure. I think maybe this. Well, maybe there are two different parallel things going on here. Um, man has freedom of, of choice. It's just that God knows how it's going to play out, but he doesn't determine it. He doesn't make it happen. 
He lets man have freedom of choice. He just knows the way it will play yeah. out. Not that he determines it. Man determines what happens. Right, but if so, but if God knows how everything's going to play out, then man doesn't really have freedom of choice. Yes, he does, because I understand what you're saying, but the whole idea is um, man plays out his life with his freedom of choice. God isn't determining that that's going to happen. God just knows it's going to play out that way. Right, but if God knows it's going to play out that way, and God's... Uh, um, and, 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 if God knows how, if God, if God knows that you're going to choose to have an egg bagel this morning rather than a plain bagel, then did you really have free choice in choosing that egg bagel? Yes, I did. Yes, yes I did. Really? Because God's just done, God just happens to know what the way things are going to play out. But I have every choice I want to make in the, in, you know. And what would happen if you chose a plain bagel instead of an egg bagel? Well, God just knows how things going to, are going to play out, but he didn't, it didn't determine it. But I think we're going to have to agree to disagree about this, because it seems to me that, uh, that, if, uh, um, that, if, that if God knows how your decisions are going to turn out, then you don't really have freedom to make those decisions. You have maybe the illusion of freedom to be able to make those decisions, but you don't really have freedom. I mean, the Mishnah already talks about this. The Mishnah says everything is for, everything... Uh, everything is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is granted, right? And so it, it, it deals with that tension. The problem is that it doesn't, it loves that phraseology because it's a, um, it, it's a, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, a paradox, right? Um, and, and it likes living in that paradox, but it actually doesn't tell you how it resolves the problem, right? The rabbi who says that in the Mishnah doesn't say, and here's what I mean by that. Right? Here's how it actually works to be able to have free choice in a world where everything is foreseen. It's as good as that leap of faith. I, you know, they're I, both a leap of faith. No, they're not. It's, it's, a, matter, it's a matter of logic. Um, you, can't, you can't live in a world where everything is foreseen and yet believe that you have the freedom to make whatever choice that you want. If you, if you do have real freedom, then, then it can't be foreseen. Well, be maybe we're trying to impose our logic on this whole situation. Well, that's for sure. That's <laughs> well, so that so, so that's so you're you're right about that. Um, but the the challenge that I would have to that is, um, what other choice do we have? In other words, if if we if we don't think that human logic is applicable to talking about matters of uh, of, of of theology and morality, it's not. You've got that leap of faith. Hold on one second. So if, if we don't think that, that human logic is applicable to talking about matters of theology and morality, then we shouldn't talk about it. And we shouldn't even try to understand it, then we shouldn't work. But if we do, then we have to trust that we have the, that they may be blunt instruments, but they're the best tools that we have, and they mean something. You know, uh, so, uh, and, and, and this isn't just Knopf speaking. I mean, Maimonides would say the same thing. That the, that the best way that human beings have to understand God is through the prism of, of human reason, right? And it may be an imperfect tool, but it is it can get you at very close, all right? And I'm going to end there for today, and we'll continue the conversation next week. <laughs>